0: Amen. Let's uh, let's pray together, and you can have a seat while while we pray. And uh, yeah, I'm just caught caught up in that line about our our gaze being transfixed on Jesus' face, and the scripture reading that fix your eyes on Jesus. God has given us a mind and an imagination to behold Him, to contemplate Him, to hold. Jesus in our mind to shed a light on all that is true and good and beautiful in this world, even in us, all the other stuff too in this world and in us. But God, I, I pray, Lord, as we look to Jesus this morning, that you would help help us to fix our eyes on him, help us to to, to look at him even when in looking at him we discover truths about our, ourselves in this world that we don't want to see but, but show us today I pray as we turn to your words show us that, that, that what we are looking at what we are beholding is love incarnate the infinite love of God made flesh who died for us who laid down his life for us to show us not only what it meant for him to be God, but what it means for us to be human as the true image of God. So I pray, Lord, that as we lift up Christ, that you would draw all people to him, as your word says. Glorify him today, as the psalmist says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Alright, well today in our, uh, in our series through the Gospel of Luke, we are going to enter into a story about a mistaken identity, mistaken identity. A person's identity can be, can be mistaken in a lot of ways. The obvious example would be a lookalikes or doppelgangers as they're called. Uh, this happens a lot of times. Uh, be, between me and Sam when people look at me from the back they, they think for sure, well I don't know why you're laughing because we, we're the same height. So, <laughs> But that's not the only way. Uh, it, it can happen when you mistake someone's identity uh, because of a role that you think that they have and maybe expectations associated with the role. I like to remind my brother of this Um, This has actually happened on three occasions when my brother has been visiting here at Crossroads. Uh, And on three occasions, people have gone up to him and said, Oh, hi, you must be Jeremy's father. (laughs) Uh, Mistaken identity. Um, Or like the lady who pulled into the Princeton Inn one evening in the 40s and handed a quarter to a wiry little man in a black suit um, ordering him to carry her luggage to her room as he was walking out the door, mistaking him for hotel staff, when in fact it was a man going to a science conference in which he was the main of attraction. You may have heard of him. His name's Albert Einstein. And as the story goes, for a moment he stood there dumbfounded, uh, but eventually he shrugged his shoulders, turned around, and carried the lady's bags up for her. Mistaken identity. Probably one of the the most bizarre and and tragic stories of mistaken identity comes from a book by that very name, a true story, uh, The book was written about. The book is called Mistaken Identity. You've probably heard of those those stories about children getting swapped at birth and then going home to the wrong family. Well, this, this book is about two people not getting... Swapped at birth, but getting swapped at death. One survivor, one deceased, two people in an accident. Uh, Begins with a woman Colleen uh, Sarek, nervously answering a phone call in the middle of the night. It was from the county coroner. And she answered and immediately said, why are you calling me again? Again, because... She recognized his voice, she recognized the number because she had gotten a call from him five weeks earlier informing her that her 18-year-old daughter, Whitney, had had died in a van accident along with four other students uh, that went to Taylor University in, in Indiana. But in this case, he was calling to tell her what you would least expect a coroner to tell you when he calls you. We have reason to believe your daughter may still be alive. Uh, At hearing this, Colleen started to become hysterical because she thought he meant that she was buried alive. So he was not very careful with his words. Um, But because they did bury someone. They had a funeral for their daughter. It's just that it was someone else's daughter in the casket. And in that family... The family of that girl who had been buried had been by Whitney's side, Colleen's daughter's side, in the hospital for five straight weeks waiting for her to recover. But as she began to recover and the swelling in her face went down and she began to come to her, her senses, uh, they slowly began to, to realize one after another that this is not our daughter. It's not who we Thought it was all this time. Their daughter had passed away. And, and the, the two girls did look strikingly similar. Um, and then the story follows this journey from an identity that was lost to an identity that was found. And with it, a life that was lost and a life that was found. And it's not so different from what we will see in the story we are reading this morning. So turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. This morning I want to introduce you to someone you already know. Uh, But in today's text, we'll discover that even those who already know Jesus are often mistaken about his identity. Confused about his identity. And and in this text, uh, we'll see that there are devastating consequences to being confused on this point. Um, Because Jesus does come uh, with not just, it's not just his name that we know. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But as the Christ, as the Son of God, he has a role to play. He has a mission to accomplish. He has a kingdom to advance. And if you're wrong about the role and the mission in the kingdom, you can't be right about the name, about the king, about the man. And so this text is going to help us clarify the name and the, the role, the king in the kingdom, the man in the mission. So beginning in verse 18 of chapter 9, um, we'll, we'll begin there. Verse 18 says, Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. I want to pause just for a moment and point out how odd that sentence is. As Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. But was he alone or was he with them? Right? Well, he he was praying alone. In prayer, he was alone. In other words, the disciples were not entered into that same space that he was in prayer. He was with his disciples, but alone in prayer. It reminds, to to describe this in just kind of everyday terms, it reminds me of something my aunt once told me, describing how her relationship with me changed after I came to know Jesus. And and then I was traveling as a missionary for about three years, and she, she told me about her experience of our relationship during that time. She said, I remember a time... When you would be in the same room and feel like you were worlds apart. And now you live across the world and you feel closer than ever. You see? Or or consider the experience of lying in bed next to your spouse. And you've just had a horrible argument. Now there's no one... Now that's never happened to you, has it? Well, this has happened to my wife and I one time. Uh, (laughs) But there's no one on earth that you're physically closer to in that moment... And yet there's no one on earth you feel more distant from in that moment is there? Is there? You see we are meet, immediately in this text we are drawn into the spiritual reality that's common to everybody. This is not just some category over here of spiritual experience. This is common to everyday life. We know because we're spiritual creatures and we know there are infinite distances between us no matter how close we are when, when there is sin or hostility or enmity between us and another person. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus is, he's with God in prayer, and yet he's all alone in relation to the disciples. Proximity is not the same as unity, is it? And, and, and it speaks to the, the fact of, of the human experience in a fallen world that people are separated from God apart from Jesus. And even when Jesus came before sending the Spirit to bring us into that spiritual union with God, even Jesus' own experience was one of alienation, feeling apart, which is why he was always running to prayer. In chapter 5, we're told that as the crowds pressed in on him, he went to desolate places to pray. He was, he was surrounded by, by crowds of people, fans and disciples, but he was all alone in a, in a real sense. And so, and so uh, verse 18 introduces this kind of, this reality that, that we will continue with. And, in it, and it leads to the question that he asks in the second half of the verse of 18 because there's a real sense that if you're not if you're not united with someone you can't you don't one of the reasons you might not be is because you don't know who they really are right and no one can be intimate with you if you haven't if they don't know you right if they don't know who you truly are and and that's why being authentic is so important because you can't have intimacy apart from authenticity and being honest about yourself and so Here he is praying alone with his disciples, second half of the verse, he says, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. Now there it is. Peter has—he's the first disciple to identify Jesus as the Christ. Christ is a word that means anointed one. It was, a, it was a title that referred to the king that God had promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. A king who would come to establish a kingdom that would last forever. A, 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 a king who would come about whom in 2 Samuel 7 God said, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And, and so all of Israel's hope rested on the coming of this Christ. And Peter's just been the first one to identify Jesus as that one that has been promised. The question I have is, was Peter right? Well, yes, certainly in one sense he is. That's probably why you're here today. You think he's right. <laughs> At least in a certain sense, that Jesus was the Christ. But it's a yes And no. Because it depends on what you mean by Christ, doesn't it? Mormons believe Jesus is the Christ. What do they believe that title means? Jehovah's Witness believe Jesus is the Christ. A lot of people believe that Jesus is the Christ. But what exactly does that title mean? What does that role uh, imply? You see, there's another way a, a person's identity can be mistaken. Where you can be actually right about the role that the person inhabits or the title they have, but wrong about what that role entails, what that that title entails, and and the job description that goes with the role. And so Peter assumes that Christ, yes, that he's the one that God promised David, 2 Samuel 7. But what he thought that meant was that Jesus was the one who was going to secure Israel's borders and reestablish Israel's sovereignty as a as a political kingdom. Basically he was going to do exactly what David did. That's what David did. And so you know you could see. Even when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem. You could understand the cheers of the people. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The son of David. And he was a descendant of David. But they had in mind that paradigm. Of what the kingdom was about. What the mission. That that, what his mission was going to be about. The problem is. That is not what it was about. It was much bigger than that. And so Peter was right about the man. He was wrong about the mission. He was right about the king. He was wrong about the kingdom. And, and that becomes clear. So it's something like uh, the subtext of this is, is something that, like this. Uh, you remember this from Princess Bride? You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. That's what Jesus said to him. No, he didn't really. (laughs) But uh, but let's let's continue. Verse twenty-one. So he and so and that because he doesn't know, and I'll, I'll explain why we know Peter didn't understand what he was saying in a minute. But but because Jesus knows that although they've identified him rightly as the Christ, Peter has, but they don't know what that title means anymore. It's for that reason the very next command, which would otherwise be surprising, comes. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. (laughs) They're not ready to go spread this news because they they would be misinforming everyone. they, They don't know exactly what it means. Saying, the Son of Man. Here's the job description. Okay, yes, I am the Christ. And this is the first time he says a word about dying, about the cross, about anything. Just now, it's at this point. And it says, don't tell anyone. And then he says, verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Which Peter has no category for that last little clause. And on the third day be raised. What on earth does that mean? All he's thinking about at this point is what Jesus said just before that. The Son of Man is going to be rejected. He's going to be turned over to the chief priests, elders, scribes, the religious leaders, and he's going to be killed, referring to himself. That's the job description of the Christ that Jesus has in mind. And we know from Mark and Matthew's account of this story that it's at this point uh, Peter takes Jesus and pulls him aside and says, I think you picked up the wrong job description at the job fair. Okay. <laughs> it says that it says actually that Peter rebuked Jesus and said, "May this never be." And Jesus, in response, rebukes Peter and ones up him his rebuke. He says, "Get behind me, Satan! You were not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men." So was Peter right when he said Christ? No. He couldn't be right and then in the, next, in the next few verses be called the worst thing anybody could possibly be called, especially by the creator of the universe, Satan, you know. And so, and so Peter had to reframe everything around this new reality. Um, and and, 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 and you, you can understand Peter's reluctance to accept this fate, Because he knows that whatever else it means for Jesus to be the Christ, his fate is going to be bound up in the fate of God's people, of the people of Israel. And And so he's anticipating, if this is going to happen to you, what's going to happen to me? And Jesus wastes no time confirming his worst fears. He seems to, at least. Verse 23, and he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, at this point, you, can under, you could understand if the disciples are thinking, I'm out of here, you know. This is not what I signed up for. What I saw was a bunch of people getting healed. I saw even people get raised from the dead. I saw the feeding of the 5,000. I saw this calming of the storm. I saw glory and power, and I was all good when you were doing that. But now you're talking about the very opposite. You're talking about being executed on a, a Roman torture device that's intended to be a A public humiliation, not only a public humiliation, but ultimately an excruciating death. I'm out of here. So the disciples are getting cold feet, you could say. In the very next uh, paragraph, and we'll end after this, is intended, I think, for God himself to step in into this experience of doubt and dread, And to confirm that, yes, this is the Christ, this is his fate, and this is your future, don't lose faith. That's why the transfiguration, as it's called in this next paragraph, always follows this story in in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So, verse 28 says this, last paragraph. Now, about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his, the Greek word here is not departure, which is what my Bible says. Whatever your Bible says, it should have a little footnote to tell you what it actually says. Spoke of his exodus which was about to be, uh, uh, which, which was necessary to be fulfilled at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah, get the imagery. Matthew says this is a vision, okay? So here they are witnessing this vision. They see Moses and Elijah, and Moses and Elijah more or less represent the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the law of Moses, and the prophets. Elijah, big head prophet ascended to heaven before dying. There were prophecies about him returning before the kingdom of God comes. And so here it is. All of the the law and the prophets, they, they, they come and they see in this vision, they see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus about the exodus being brought to fulfillment. In other words, salvation history was not complete when God took his people out of Egypt, and into the promised land. There is a greater exodus that is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And it was necessary for him to to come and fulfill it in precisely the way he was going to fulfill it. Being handed over, killed, and on the third day being raised. And so, um, verse 32, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake... They saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Mistaken identity. (laughs) He, He doesn't want to leave this moment, and you could understand why. I mean, he's standing in the glory of God, you know, seeing this amazing vision, And then verse 34, as he was saying, just as he was saying, let's not leave this moment. um, As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Remember, Jesus is essentially glowing at this point, right? His face was transfigured. Matthew says his, his garments became dazzling white, whiter than anyone could bleach them. And so the Visualize it. The cloud comes over. Now it's overcast like it is in Washington every day of my life. And what, what's happening visually in that moment? The glowing one is highlighted, right? And the, the others disappear. It says um, that the cloud overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one listen to him. It's the same voice that was heard by Jesus at his baptism, according to Luke, that the heavens were ripped open and a voice from heaven came down and said, you are my son, the beloved, and you I am well pleased. And now this voice has something to say to his disciples. This is the chosen one. Listen to him. In other words, don't listen to Moses and Elijah to understand Jesus. Listen to Jesus to understand Moses and Elijah, right? You can't, you, if you think that, that, it's like what Jesus said to the Pharisees in the Gospel of John. He said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. So if the scriptures are not bearing witness about Jesus, you are not reading them right, Okay? Mistaken identity. If you want to understand the old, you have to understand the new. And you can't understand either without the other, but there's priority, okay? Jesus is the word of God, as John calls him. The word of God in flesh. And so, verse 36, last last verse. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of God. So, you can, you can see what I mean, right? That, that you can know Jesus and still be confused about his true identity. And for Peter, he was right about the man, wrong about the mission, right about the king, wrong about the kingdom. In both, in both senses, it's in light of the cross, it's the cross that he couldn't reconcile with the kingdom, right? But for us, and, and that's that probably true for us, there are probably always going to be levels of confusion for us in the same way as it was for Peter. But it, it's not just that, it's not really the same kind of confusion because we know from, we have the advantage of hindsight. You know, we read the cross through the Easter lens, and we should, we must. But, but I want to address this morning, confusion that this text, I think, sheds a light on, not about the kingdom of God or the mission of God in light of the cross, but the character of God in light of the cross. Because it does raise questions about God's character. And there are plenty of confusions about God's character in light of the cross. For example, Christopher Hitchens, famous atheist who recently... uh, Somewhat recently died. In his book, God is Not Great, he says, Once again, we have a father demonstrating love by subjecting his son to death by torture. But this time, the father is not trying to impress God. He is God, and he's trying to impress humans. Richard Dawkins, famous, the most famous atheist, likely, says this in his book, The God Delusion. New Testament theology adds a new injustice topped off by a new sadomasochism. God incarnated himself as a man, Jesus, in order that he should be tortured and executed in atonement for the hereditary sin of Adam. It is, when you think about it, remarkable that a religion should adopt an instrument of torture and execution as its sacred symbol often worn around the neck. The thing that bothers me most about those statements is not that atheists are misunderstanding the character of God in light of the cross. What bothers me is that their description about the meaning of Jesus' death sounds eerily similar to many Christians I've heard articulate the meaning of Jesus' death. And it should raise questions about the character of God if that description describes what you read when you read the gospel. And so this morning may feel a little bit different because I really just want to, st- to, 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 to address an issue that I don't know how much application there will be for you, except that perhaps if you are confused in the way that these guys are confused, if you do understand the deception and the confusion. My prayer and my hope is that you will walk out of here with the blinders off your eyes as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians that the the minds of unbelievers are blinded from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ who is the image of God. I want you to behold his glory this morning. I want you to see his beauty in the pure and perfect and infinite love of God the Father, not just the Son, but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So there's three, there's three movements, okay, that we're going to work through. Because these are, the, these are the issues that raise questions about the character of God. How do we, how do we talk about a loving God in a world full of death? In a world where we're all going to die, right? So we're going to talk about death and the necessity of death in a fallen world. We're going to talk about love and the relationship between death and love. They are surprisingly related in ways, I think, that will become self-evident. And then how the cross reconciles both, okay? So first, death, death. The Lord commanded the man. So where's death come from, first of all? Okay. Yes. Well, Genesis. It comes from, yes, Genesis. You could say that. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not the tree of knowledge. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of that tree, you shall shall not eat of Uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, why this tree is the big question, right? We've talked about this before, but it's worth revisiting over and over. Unfortunately, when it comes to texts like Genesis 3, people get so hung up over the debate, is this literal, is this figurative? Is this symbolic? Is it? that they they fail to actually consider either way, what's the meaning, right? Because even if if it's literal, we're not being told that this, it's not like there was a sign on the tree that said the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the sense that, you know, actually grew fruit called evil and good, you know what I'm saying? Like there's a reason it was given that name. So what is the meaning of the name? That's the question. Because that's all important in understanding death. Because what kind of knowledge is good and evil? In a world where God has already declared everything is good, Genesis 1, that's the refrain of Genesis 1. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. That's the conclusion. But after everything he made, it was good. He saw that he made it. It was good. It was good. It was good and then finally creates human beings in his image and it's very good. So what, what kind of knowledge is he talking about? He's not talking about factual knowledge, informational knowledge. He's talking about judgment-type knowledge. To, to know good and evil is to determine what is good and determine what's evil. So there's a simple way of understanding this, okay? You may understand that our government is based on a separation of powers, The idea is people are too corrupt to have absolute power, amen, hallelujah, right? And so our founding fathers of this country put together a constitution that would separate the powers of government so that there would be checks and balances and there couldn't be any one person or office that had absolute power. And so there's three branches of a government, legislative branch, judicial branch, and, and executive branch. There's lawmakers, there's judges, and then there's the president. Right? You follow me? Okay. So, if you want to understand what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, it was a separation of powers. God was putting a limit on the kind of power human beings were supposed to have. Namely, we were given dominion, okay? We were given dominion, the end of Genesis chapter 1. We are created in his image, given dominion over all living creatures. So we were given a kind of executive power. But what we were not given is the power to become lawmakers and judges. That's what the knowledge of good and evil is all about. So judicial power, who is that? God has it. Creation, he created the world and judged and pronounced the verdict. It's all very good. There was no objective evil in the world as God created it. Where did evil come from? He had legislative power. The Lord commanded them, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What I'm saying is that what, that, what does that mean? It means you shall not become lawmakers and judges. Don't try to become me, which is precisely the temptation of the serpent, isn't it? God knows if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I mean, the temptation was... was just repeated back. The name of the tree was just repeated back to him. I mean, it wasn't, it, it, he was supposed to be the cleverest, but it just seemed like it wasn't that great of a trick. I think the, I think the deception was he got, them to, he got them to fail to see how they already were like God, right? Remember, he created them in his image and likeness. And Satan is saying, well, you can become like God, and they forgot they already were. They, they forgot they already were by living under his command and under his judgment, a very good judgment in the beginning, and so gave us dominion over all things. And, and here, why, why is it so important that humans not be the ones who define what is good and evil, and let God be the one who defines what's good and evil, the lawmaker and the judge? Because it leads to a world that Isaiah described, a one that's very familiar to all of us. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. It's the language of the fall. She saw that the tree was good for fruit, delight to the eyes and desire to make one wise. They are wise in their own eyes, clever like that serpent in their own sight. It's a world where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And so, and so in that world, Isaiah looks ahead to a Savior. And that salvation is going to be a unification of power. Okay? We need someone who has absolute power to fix this world. The problem is it can't be a man, at least not in the way we would think of it. And so Isaiah looks to a time when the Lord is our judge the, uh, the, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, the unification of power, okay? Executive, legislative, judicial, all under the Lordship of the Lord. Okay? Does this make sense? You follow me? That's what he's looking forward to in Isaiah. Because in the end, this: a world with with sin and without death is hell on earth. A world with sin and without death is hell on earth. There's nothing good about a world rampant in sin where we have to be stuck here forever, right? And that's, you, you, see, you see the logic of it in Genesis. In the beginning, people were said to have lived like 900 years, you know, Methuselah, 969 years. And we're told in Genesis 6 that that these supermen were taking wives as they chose, against their will, okay? And they were were violent. And and it said that the Lord was grieved to his heart because the wickedness of man was so great and he did all that was evil continually. And so he limits the number of days of, of man to 120 years according to Genesis 6. It's like, that's the limit. You're not going to get over that, more or less, okay? And then he wipes out that, the, the earth with a flood and preserves a little remnant of Noah's family and very quickly after that, it just returns to the same old, same old, okay? So you see, a world with sin and without death is hell on earth. That's why death is necessary, okay? So that's Death. I hope I hope that makes at least some sense to you about why death is necessary in a fallen world. I mean imagine just imagine if Hitler were invincible, right? You know what I'm saying? Like this is what I mean. So so death. But what about love then? You see, death has a death has another function, though. And this has become I've only seen this as I've endured death of loved ones in life. This has become clear. And has made the gospel clear to me. Death has a function of awakening us to the reality of love. And the, real, and the value of human life as, as those created in God's image. So I, I wasn't going to share this, but I ran it by Kelly, And she said, no, actually that makes sense. And I was so surprised normally. Normally I don't run things by her because she's like, no, don't do that. So, <laughs> but I, there's kind of a a kind of way of reasoning or deduction that, that helps me understand death in relation to love. And so it begins with this. What is truth? So I'm going to begin with just a, a basic question. What, what is truth? Well, Jesus says, it's me. I am the way and the truth and the life. And, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And so in other words, the observation here is truth in light of the fact of creation and salvation, truth is not a proposition, it's a person. If you strip away everything in the universe, everything in creation, what's left? Not a place of empty space. It's not a place, it's a person. Fundamental reality is personal. It's God. It's the creator. It's, it's revealed in Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, I am the truth. That means truth is a person. Okay, if truth is a person, you follow me? Okay, if truth is a person, what's the truest possible human experience? Because I'm a person too. So how can I experience the truth? Surely I can. Surely I can. If truth is a person, then what is the truest possible human experience? Well, obviously, we have the advantage of hindsight. We know know what 1 John says. What this person is like, 1 John says God is love. That's right. So surely the truest possible of human experiences is love, right? You follow? We all agree? Okay. When is love most truly experienced in all its depth and intensity and severity? It's in grief, isn't it? Is it not? It is, of course, enjoyed in life. But, but love is most fully experienced in the death of a beloved. You experience the, the infinite depths of lo- love in the loss of, of a loved one. And is there a type of grief, grief, whose depth and intensity and severity is greatest? Yes. surely it's the death of a child. You follow. It is the unspeakable, shattering revelation of love's infinite depths and dimensions. The death of a child. So uh, there's a book um, called The Unspeakable Loss, written by a therapist who lost her own son. And she works with parents who have lost children. And it's filled with the most heart-wrenching stories and testimonies of of these parents. And I just want to read you a, a few. And we are, we are moving toward, toward good news, I, I promise you, okay? But we have to enter th- by way of the cross, okay? After Lily died, I just wanted to, uh, I want you to think about what grief awakens in us and what it does for us in, in revealing a truth that Jesus is going to come and actually carry us into, okay? This is where I'm going. After Lily died, I just wanted to melt I wanted to just melt into the ground myself and disappear. If I could have, I would have just literally melted into the ground and found her and been buried next to her. That's how much I just wanted to be with Lily. I did not want to have to survive without her. In the last month, I have been trying not to go under. I have been so close to going under. He and I were like one. When he died, I died. I wanted to die to be with him. And this is something I wrote after Kelty and I had a miscarriage with our second son, Cadence. Reflecting on it, I wrote this. Grief is nothing other than the sharp edge of love. And it is the severing wound left by this edge that exposes the depths of both love and the beloved as they truly are. The image of God. That's why it goes so deep. It's as though something divine itself. I'm not saying humans are divine, but it goes as deep as God goes, which is forever. Forever. Indeed, nothing reveals the terrible power of, uh, power of love like the reckless desire to forsake all this world affords to dive into the infinite abyss just to remain with one's beloved in death. But death affords no withness. So what does it profit a man to lose the whole world and also his soul? Love dies, and terribly, life goes on. Now... Do you see how death in a fallen world actually awakens us to the reality of love? Now, it awakens us to it in a tragedy, in a story where death is final, and there's nothing, there's nothing good about loving in a world like that. There's nothing good about love. It's, it's no wonder we harden our hearts to people in a world where everyone's going to die. It's no wonder we don't allow ourselves to become vulnerable and to be close with people. And when we know we're going to have to say goodbye, it's much easier just to to pursue our self-interest, to build a cage around our heart, to let no one touch it, to never become vulnerable, never have to love at all. In a world where that's the end of the story. But beloved, (laughs) that's not the end of the story. And that's what the cross, that's what the cross is all about. I'm going to skip that. The cross. Okay. So we're coming to our conclusion here. So how does, first of all, how does God himself interpret the death of Jesus? He's the one who put death and love into the same reality, into the same event. Of Jesus, Greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus, when, when Jesus saw the cross, that's what he was interpreting it as. As love, as the greatest act of love. It's, it, it's, it's what we heard in the scripture reading. There was, it was not that he was just looking at the cross and looking forward to it. It was for the joy set before him he endured the cross. There is something that this death was going to accomplish, in other words. Romans 5.8. God has proven his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So so God Himself is the one associating death and love. But but from eternity past, there was only love. There was no grief in the, you know, in God's life before creating it. We're the ones who brought grief into the mix. We're the ones who brought grief into the equation of love. Death, death is something that we brought into the, the the creation of God, the life of God. And and because of that, like I said in Genesis 6, God became a grieving God. The, the God who is perfect love became a God who who grieves. Because there is no grief apart from love, is there? Right? Right? And so we're introduced in Genesis 6, this God is grieving over his creation. And when we're told about the one who would be called the Christ in Isaiah 53, this is how he's described. This is the weight of Jesus. This is the weight that Jesus carried around in his person as he saw everyone as someone infinitely loved. There was no rest for his eyes when he walked this earth. He loved everyone like you love your children or you love your parents or you love your most loved one. And he knew their fate and he grieved over it like you do and infinitely more. No wonder he's not always the most, you know, fun guy to be around in the Gospels. Because he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus Christ is God's grief made flesh to die with us so that we can live with him. It, you, it's the impulse of grief when you lose a loved one to dive into death. You heard it from those mothers, did you not? I would rather just die so I could be with him. I'd rather melt into the ground just so I could be buried with my beloved, right? This is what the gospel embodies. God wanted that too. The thing about God, though, is that he can't be contained by death. When he descends into death, death shatters, not God. Death is, death is no more. But those who are dead are raised with him. That's what it means for him to be Emmanuel, God with us, not just in life. Peter, I'm going... To death, I came for that purpose. That's why I've come. You, you're worried about a kingdom. It, 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 you're worried about this, this very small thing. It's like the house is burning down and you're rearranging the furniture. Don't you see what I'm doing here? It's so much bigger than that. Would you let your heart hope for the, the greatness and the grandness of the gospel? And so that's why in this text that we've even read, you, you hear this, this contrast about Jesus' identity. Jesus introduces himself as the son of man when he says that he'll be handed over and killed and on the third day be raised. Who's he talking about, son of man? Now, I know it's in Daniel 7, but who's he talking about? Is he talking about himself? Well, obviously he is. But becoming the son of man, literally, The son of God becomes the son of man so that whatever happens to him, our fate is bound up in his future, right? Right? That's why Luke gives in his genealogy, he doesn't stop at Abraham like all the other genealogy. He he keeps going right to Adam and then he calls Adam the son of God. No one else in the Bible has done that because it wouldn't have been true apart from this revelation that Jesus himself, the son of God, became son of man. So when God says, this voice from heaven, at the end of the passage says, a voice from heaven came from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. He is talking about Jesus, but he's talking about you too. Because he's not just the son of God. He's the son of man. He is the human representative. He is the new Adam. He came to undo the sin of Adam by becoming obedient unto death, by letting God be judge, lawmaker, and the executive Lord. And now, because he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He unified the powers. He did what Isaiah said he was going to do to the glory of God the Father. And so the gospel, listen, the gospel of, in the cross, I want to be clear about this because I've heard Christians say something as reductive as God killed Jesus on the cross. What did Jesus say? Hand hand it over to the hands of men to be crucified and killed. The cross is not what God did to Jesus. It's what Jesus did for God on our behalf. It's what Jesus did for his father. And so the, the way you have to understand the gospel is that the son comes into the world as this grief of God embodied and he's sent the spirit this is my son the beloved he follows the spirit obediently all the way through this world all the way to the cross so that the conclusion of the gospel in in Luke at the cross Jesus offers up not just his spirit but all humanity to the father when he says father into your hands i commit my spirit you see, he, he was offering all of us to the Father on his behalf. He was, God was getting what God wanted. He came into the abyss. He dove into death so that he could be with us in newness of life. So this is a story about identity lost and identity found. And with it, life that's lost and life that's found. But it's not like this story I began with. Because in this story, no daughter has to remain dead for someone else's life to be restored, right? Jesus did die for us, but you know what happened, right? What happened to him is the same thing that's going to happen to you. That's why he's called in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits from the dead. If there's first fruits, there's second fruits coming, and that's you, and that's me. And all humanity is offered back up to God in the cross and in Jesus Christ, God receives us to life. Amen? And so what, uh, just to, what does it mean then to take up our cross? Right? Because it wasn't just he was saying, I'm going to die. He said, and you need to take up your cross too. It means two things, I think. First of all, you need to understand the cross is not a symbol of self-sacrifice. You can get there. And Jesus did say, deny yourself. But understand that the cross is a symbol of guilt. Kill, guilty, prison, or guilty criminals were punished on crosses. So when Jesus says, "Take up your cross," what He's saying is, all humanity is guilty of becoming lawmakers and judges. And He's doing undoing on this tree what Adam did on that, with that first tree. And so the very first thing you need to do if you want a relationship with Jesus is you need to confess that I'm guilty. I have sinned. I've become my own lawmaker and judge. And I confess that Jesus is Lord, which means he gets to take the power back. You offer it up willingly. That's the first thing it means. That Jesus alone is, is fit to be lawmaker and judge for my life. And the second thing it means is that, I would just say by implication at least, we have to be prepared for a world where our most Beloved people in our lives are going to die. Don't harden your heart toward God when that happens. Because he is with you in it. He is Emmanuel in death. And because he is Emmanuel, God with us in death. Death is not the conclusion of the story. Death doesn't get the final say. And the last enemy to be destroyed, as Paul says, is death. And when that happens, we are all going to be with God in the land of the living. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Now have the worship team come forward. Father, when we actually look at the basic claims of the gospel, we recognize they appeal to our deepest longings. And it hurts to hope for that kind of reunion. It hurts to hope. We don't want our... Our, our hearts to be that soft that we could hope because what if our hope gets dashed again i pray that you would breathe new hope into everyone in this room for the otherwise grandiose claims of the gospel that that god has come with us to be with us in death and put an end to death and to be with our beloved to be with our loved ones in death to put an end to separation so that there would be one vision that we look forward to, which is reunion. Reunion with you and reunion with all our loved ones in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as you go from this place, uh, we'll just put this blessing on you from God's word. 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. But beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. As you go this week, may you fix your eyes on Jesus. And be transformed according to his likeness. His image, the image that we're all created to embody. Amen? Amen. Go in that grace.